Today on Blue 58, training camp has begun and the Packers are ready to begin their quest for the Super Bowl. So far, the story is the injury list, but there's a lot more going on with this team than the guys who aren't on the field. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. Well, training camp is underway And like I said in the opening couple lines there, the story so far is the guys who aren't on the field. And we've got to start with David Bakhtiari. Wasn't out there for the first practice of training camp, wasn't out there for the second practice of training camp. And we'll talk about what they did for his replacements in the meantime uh, in a second here. But we also got to hear from David himself for the first time really since all this started going down. And he was revealing but also sort of vague about some things. And I think to start we got to hear him describe where he's at with his injury in his own words. Obviously, I uh, had surgery in the offseason, cleaned it up. Concern level, low. Really like where I'm at, especially compared to where I was just overall last year. Uh, I think he kind of hit it on the head. No expectations. Taking it every day at a time. Like where I'm at. Appreciate it and uh, excited to play again. So he had the cleanup procedure in the offseason to fix meniscus, cartilage, a little bit of something in there. It was a more serious injury than initially disclosed. Uh, It wasn't just an ACL injury. Obviously dealt with some meniscus issues, some cartilage issues in his knee, and the subsequent swelling and fluid and all of those sorts of things. An ACL is a complicated injury. Your knee is a complicated joint. There's a lot that goes into it and a lot of things that can go wrong. And he says he's close. He says he's getting really close. In fact, he went on to say that it's not actually the original injury at all that's bothering him, but he wouldn't really go super deep on what was keeping him off the field now. It's load management, it's stress, it's kind of a combination of things, but it's really not any one thing. Just, I guess, let him tell you in his own words. I feel normal. My knee feels normal, and that's the biggest plus. Now it's just getting that normal feeling again when I play football. So that's with the load, the stress, the strength. But uh, we're not really in an ACL issue. That's been actually a long time ago. And we put that, uh, that chapter to bed. It's just there's other issues that we're navigating around, things I'm learning. And it's been, uh, like I said, it's, just been my, it's been my nightmare. So it's something I have to live with. So I'm left not really knowing what to think at this point. It seems like things are getting better. We're not all the way there. We're not dealing with the original injury, but still dealing with some issues. The the doomsday clock is not quite where it was a couple of days ago, but it's not like moving all the way back to 11.30 p.m. Like, we're still within a few minutes of midnight. I mean, we're not... We don't have David Bakhtiari on the field, and there's really no, no sort of timeline as to when that's going to be. I don't know how you can be anything other than concerned yet. It's still, I think at this point, to me, we have to be, we have to assume that it's not going to be him until it is him at left tackle for the Packers in week one. The hope is that it will be. I think I still feel pretty good about the prediction that I made that it would be him out there in week one. But man, uh, it's hard to feel certain about anything when it comes to that knee. Also a bit of a surprise this week was that Mason Crosby is dealing with a knee injury. He too had a procedure his in this offseason. And I think as will be the case with as many injuries as we deal with throughout the, um, well, throughout training camp and the season, I want to have the guy 
tell you himself if we can. And Crosby spoke about his surgery to reporters this week. Yeah, just, uh, you know, I have a right knee injury that, uh, you know, that I've, uh, you know, been kind of dealing with here through the offseason. And, uh, you know, it's wear and tear over the years, different things. It just, uh, you know, uh, kind of, you know, didn't feel like it was it was where it needed to be, um, you know, at the end of OTA. So, um, yeah, just trying to get healthy and get right and make sure that, uh, you know, by, you know, by the regular season, at the very, you know, at the very latest, I'm I'm ready to roll. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time being overly concerned about a kicker heading into the the regular season, but saying I hope I can be ready at the latest by week one is not super encouraging when you're turning over potentially the other two thirds of the the field goal battery, given that that was a problem pretty much all of last year, doing no small part to the turnover there. A new holder to start. Then a new long snapper, it never really felt smooth. And now we're in a situation where we could be going through that again. The kicker will be different. The holder seems pretty settled, but we're trying to sort out long snapper too. It just seems like a a headache that you'd rather not deal with. And maybe Gabe Burkich just stabilizes this whole situation and they let Crosby take as long as he possibly needs to to get back. We'll see. Final injury that I think we need to spend a little time on is Christian Watson. And there's nothing really to talk about here because nobody's being super forthcoming on the details here. Just a little little bit of an off-season issue that needed a procedure to clean up, straighten out, whatever way you want to put it. Now he is not ready for the start of training camp. And this is obviously, I think, for, for reasons that don't need a lot of explanation, a big problem for a rookie. Because you're already starting a little bit behind the eight ball. You have to learn to be an NFL football player. And on top of that, have to learn a complicated playbook and deal with a quarterback who, if even if the, the worries about him not meshing well with rookie receivers are a little bit, you know, overblown, you still have a very particular quarterback who likes things done a particular way. And all the reps matter. And he's not getting reps right now. Fortunately, in the meantime, it looks like Romeo Dubs is doing everything he can to make up for whatever might be lost by not having Watson out there. But you'd like to have your second-round receiver for whom you traded up on the field as much as possible. Because, well, you traded up for him for a reason. You need help at receiver. He can't provide it if he's on the sideline. Non-injury stuff in training camp so far. The first thing, and really the only thing that I'm really monitoring so far, is the offensive line. The first offensive line that went out there for team stuff in training camp was left to right, Yash Nyman, John Runyon, Josh Myers, Jake Hansen, and Royce Newman. Four of those five aren't a real big surprise, Jake Hansen being at right guard is. He's been primarily, if not exclusively, a center. I can't remember any talk of him playing a different position to this point in his NFL career. That doesn't mean it hasn't happened. I I may have just missed it. But that they're thinking of him as a potential guard option is noteworthy, I think. Then day two, the Packers go out with a different configuration on the offensive line, left to right. Zach Tom at left tackle, John running at left guard, Royce Myers at center, center, or Josh Myers at center, Royce Newman at right guard, and Yash Nyman on the right side. A little bit of a different configuration. And interesting that it's Zach Tom, who I had previously described as almost exclusively an interior offensive line prospect, getting the nod at left tackle. Now, this may mean nothing. It may mean that they're trying to figure out what things could look like on the right side if David Bakhtiari is available early or in week one, or they could just be trying some stuff. 
I kind of lean towards the, they're probably just trying some stuff, school of thought right now, because this is training camp and that's what you do, especially when it's July 28th. We've got a long way to go before we're playing, shoot, even preseason games, much less games that matter. But I think it is worth noting. The line that I kept coming back to um, when I thought about this and a couple other developments is, it's not nothing, or nothing is nothing. This sounds vague and weird and stuff, but you can't really discount anything. Anything could be something. Nothing is nothing. Sounds very vague and almost nihilistic philosophically, but philosophically, but I think you understand what I'm saying. You can't just totally discount everything because it's just training camp. Sooner or later, something is going to matter. Another thing that may be nothing, another thing that may matter, is that Jack Coco got the first crack at long snapper this week. He and Stephen Wordle are in a uh, position battle for that spot. Coco gets first crack. Again, maybe nothing. Maybe that nothing is nothing. Packers have also been busy filling out their roster this week. We talked about two signings last time around. We got two more to discuss that happened. One happened within minutes of me uploading the last podcast. The other one uh, happened the next day. Uh, Packers sign cornerback Dante Vaughn, six foot three, 210 pounds out of Notre Dame. He came into the league as a safety after a relatively low profile career at Notre Dame. Packers now thinking of him as a cornerback. Don't have any testing numbers on him. Size is noteworthy. Probably looking at a special teams body. File him under no expectations for right now. No predictions either way. Ishmael Hyman, a wide receiver, joins the Packers. Six feet tall, even, 196 pounds. Out of James Madison, had some success there. Was a pretty pretty good player at small school James Madison. Not a good tester, though, save for a 4-4-5 40-yard dash. He went undrafted all the way back in 2018. Played after that in the Alliance of American Football. Had a few short stints with the Browns, Buccaneers, and Panthers, including 50 snaps in an actual NFL game for the Buccaneers in 2019. He played in the USFL this spring. Packers just need some camp bodies. You need a certain number of players at every position to have an NFL practice. And I think that's Hyman here and Osiris Mitchell as well with Christian Watson on the pup list, with Sammy Watkins on the pup list, with Malik Taylor on the pup list. You just need guys so that you can have actual practices. And it's this guy, the other guy. You're there to just run around and fill in spots because you you got to have guys to do that. So I think that's the story there. Wouldn't get too hung up on, on really any of these late signings, but, you know, stranger things have happened. I want to give one last shout out here before we dive into some of the other stuff I want to talk about today for the um, Blue 58 Podcast Scholarship. We are, as you would listen to this, if you're listening on Friday, July 29th, in the last day of voting. Voting runs through 5 p.m. on Friday, July 29th. So head to thepowersweep.com and cast your vote there uh, for the four pitches up for consideration. I'm excited to announce the winner, and I'm excited for you helping me pick them. We've spent a lot of this last couple of weeks um, leading up to training camp talking about predictions and expectations. And we've talked about every position group on the roster and given our expectations and a few predictions for, if not the position groups as a whole, as a whole for every player at those positions. Now that training camp is underway, I thought we'd take a little bit of time to talk about our predictions for the team as a whole. And then I've got a couple questions from listeners that I want to answer, and we'll call it good for this first week of training camp. 
Let's start with offense. There's been a lot of turnover on the offense, but the Packers still have two really important elements. They've got an MVP caliber quarterback, and they've got a creative offensive mind running the show. And given those realities, I think it's still fair to expect quite a bit from this Packers offense. I think you're looking at an offense that is going to be top five by Football Outsiders DVOA metric. This is something we've fallen back on a lot over the years. I think it's a good overall metric of how the Packers are producing on offense, how NFL teams produce on offense. I still think this offense will be efficient. The volume stuff might be different than we've seen before, but I still think they're going to be able to move the ball and put up points and win games. They are going to be one of the more efficient offenses in the NFL. Related prediction to that, I saw a recent over-under, and I'm not a gambler, but this one nearly tempted me to that end. Recent over-under that said Aaron Rodgers passing yards, or the over-under for Aaron Rodgers passing yards was 3,950 for the 2022 season. If I was a gambler, I would feel pretty comfortable about betting the over there because 3,950 yards is just over 232 per game for a 17-game season. I mean, short of an injury, Rodgers should get that in his sleep. Come on. 3,950, we'll add that to our list of predictions for Aaron Rodgers. Also on the offense, scoring, I think, is going to be down a little bit this year. They averaged 26.47 per game last year. I'm predicting that this year the Packers average between 22.5 and 25 points per game. Two and a half point range there. Feel pretty comfortable about, about that, though. I think they are going to, to score a little bit less. I don't think you're going to see a ton of games where they just really light up the scoreboard, at least especially not early in the season. But I I think they are still going to be an efficient offense. They're still going to score plenty. It's just that they may not score in bunches quite like they did last year, or especially in 2020. How about on defense overall? Three predictions there. I think they're going to make a big jump in efficiency on that side of the ball. They're going to be top 12, is my prediction, by DVOA this year. It'll be a jump of 10 spots at least. They were 22nd in that metric last year. But I think it's doable. You've got continued improvement from Rashawn Gary. You've got more help for Kenny Clark up front. And you've got uh, a full season, potentially, of Jair Alexander. And with that, potentially a full season of uh, Rasul Douglas and a second year from Eric Stokes. That is an opportunity for improvement in three areas of the defense. They should be better just by their defense improving internally to say nothing of how they'll do in the second year of a scheme. And I think if you look at that DVOA number, I think it's fair to say that a couple games really sunk them last year. The the late season Vikings game in particular, where they lost 34-31, particularly hurt them a lot in their rankings. That affected a lot of the stuff down the stretch. I think if they can avoid games like that where they really stink up the joint, if they just avoid spectacular losses and keep things close, they're going to look better by the numbers. I think their their defense was better than the numbers last year. I also predict that they're going to be top 12 in the league in sacks, so roughly top third in the NFL. Rashawn Gary is pretty much going to handle this all by himself, based on our earlier predictions. But I think Kenny Clark is also going to have a big year in terms of pressuring the quarterback too. And they should be able to just uh, get after the quarterback more than they did this past season uh, as a result. Finally, I think they'll be, again, top 10 in the NFL in takeaways. They were eighth last year, and I know that takeover, takeaways are fickle year to year. But as we've said the, before, 
how they continue to grow and improve as a defense is taking the ball away. Ballhawks are going to define the secondary, and I think they're going to have a lot of plays on the ball. So those are my three defensive predictions. Special teams. Just one here. They will be in the top half of the NFL by DVOA. Last year, they were at the very bottom. If they can get to the top half, that's an enormous improvement. And it should, at the very least, allow them to say that special teams did not overtly cost them a game in 2022. That would not be possible to say of 2021. There were, there were games that were, if not outright cost by the special teams, made unnecessarily close and stressful by the special teams. There was at least one game where special teams won the game, too. It was uh, the 49ers win where Mason Crosby hit an enormous field goal late. But um, if we can at least get to a point where special teams is neutral, right in the right in the middle, just be in the top half, just barely into the top half, still meets this prediction, the Packers are still still doing pretty well. In terms of wins or success this year, three final predictions. First, I think the floor for wins for the Packers this year is 12. 12 and 5 would be a very solid season this year. And I think it's going to be at least 12 wins for the Packers this year. And considering they play in the NFC North, they should be well on their way just in divisional play. I I do not think super highly of the NFC North. In fact, I think the Packers are basically going to sleepwalk to another NFC North title again this year. Make it four in a row for Matt LaFleur. Finally, in terms of postseason success, I think we're going to stick with the prediction we've made for the Packers the last two years. They are at least going to advance to the divisional round of the playoffs. I wouldn't feel bad about saying that they could go farther than that, but I think the divisional round is where things start to really become less about your talent and more about matchups. So I, I, I really don't want to say they'll go farther than that because you don't know who they're going to end up matched up against. But the talent and the coaching on this team should get them at least to the divisional round. If they don't get the top seed in the NFC, in the NFC, they should at least be able to comfortably win in the wild card round and get to the divisional round. From there, it's going to depend who you're matched up with. As we saw last year, a bad matchup can sink, sink your game. Uh, even if the Packers played, well, the fact that the Packers didn't play well in that game obviously helped the matchup a lot more, but the matchup was made, well, the game was much easier to lose because the 49ers matched up really well with a lot of the Packers' weaknesses. Had the Packers played, say, just, just to pull another team there, say they had played the Cowboys from last year in the divisional round. On paper, the Cowboys were a better team than the 49ers. I think the Packers have an easier time with the Cowboys just because of the way that team is built versus how the 49ers were built. Matchups start mattering in the divisional round, so I'm going to predict the Packers get to the divisional round, and then we'll see what happens from there. This is, as um, as each of the last, I think, two seasons have been, a Super Bowl or bust year. That is the expectation I'm not saying I expect them to win the Super Bowl, but that is the standard, I guess is what we should say. The standard by which the season will be judged is do they win a Super Bowl or don't they? There is no there is no building for this team. You are expected to compete for a Super Bowl this year, and if you don't, it's a failure. A lot of people will try to say that's the case every year. I'm not one of those people. 
There are different life cycles for teams. There are different stages of development for teams. The Packers are at a point with Matt LaFleur, with Aaron Rodgers, with the offense being what it is, that they should be competing for a Super Bowl this year. And if they're not, something has gone wrong. That's what happened last year. They did not ultimately end up competing for a Super Bowl, and it was the season was an abject failure as a result. All the stuff that they went through, all the, the injuries that they handled, all those guys who put in all those hours to come back ends up just being, to quote Ron Wolf, just a fart in the wind. Counted for nothing, and the season was a failure as a result. Those are my predictions for the 2021 Packers, 2022 Packers, excuse me, off by an entire year. Now I'll take a couple of your questions as we head into this training camp season. Uh, The first question up is from Carl Anderson. Question triggered by the first chapter of The Games That Changed the Game, the book club book that we just finished earlier this week. The Packers' defense in 2021 didn't strike me as the blitzing kind, Carl observes. Got any data to support this gut feeling? And given the defensive line and edge look pretty stacked, what are your predictions for 2022? More or less or roughly the same amount of blitzing from Mr. Barry's defense this season. Any particular player to keep an extra eye on as a blitzer and any of the 2022 opponents the Packers should blitz more against or any opponent they should avoid blitzing against? Good question, and I did find some numbers on that. They are from Pro Football, Fo- uh, Pro Football Reference, excuse me, uh, which gets their advanced defensive data from Sports Inc. or from Stats Inc. So, um, take it for whatever it's worth. But at least according to their numbers, relative to the rest of the league, the Packers didn't blitz all that much in 2021. So Carl's instinct was correct there. They blitzed on 21.3 percent of defensive play- plays last year. That was the eighth least in the NFL, bottom quarter of the league. Uh, in terms of blitz frequency. For comparison, the Packers blitzed on 24.7% of snaps in 2020. That was 11th least. In 2019, it was 22.7%, the fifth least. And in 2018, they actually blitzed quite a bit. 29.3% of plays featured a blitz from the Packers. That was 10th most in the NFL. So their defenses have been tending to trend a little bit downward in terms of how often they've blitzed. And maybe that's a reflection of the league as a whole, Uh, But last year, at least, relative to the rest of the league, the Packers didn't blitz all that much. In terms of 2022, I would guess mostly the same. If I had to lean one way or another, I would say maybe slightly more. I think that's because of uh, personnel. We have spent a lot of time talking about how they could use a third edge rusher. If they're going to blitz more, I think it would be because of lack of depth on the edge. So, Who would we want to watch if the Packers are trying to compensate for the lack of edge depth by blitzing? If you think about what we've talked about on defense, if we think about how their base may look a little bit different in 2022 than in the past, if you think about his athletic skill set, I think there's one obvious answer, and that would be Quay Walker. If he's on the field, I think Walker should be going after the quarterback a lot. He should be used all over the formation to create matchups for For the defense. So if they look at his pass rushes as more blitz opportunities, well, maybe the Packers do end up blitzing more in 2022 than in 2021. In terms of who they should and should not blitz against, well, I think broadly speaking, you don't want to blitz against veteran quarterbacks. That seems like, generally speaking, something that doesn't tend to work out very well. Unless you're going to get home very quick, I don't think you blitz veterans because blitzing is all about, at least based on how I view the game and and what we've read in in books like Games That Change the Game and other things that examine scheme and tendencies and things like that, the idea behind blitzing is either to 
surprise someone and bring pressure from somewhere that they're just flat out unprepared to block from, or to force the quarterback to process more quickly than he otherwise would. Now, most veteran quarterbacks have seen most every blitz you can throw at them, so fast processing isn't or at least shouldn't be an issue. 2019, I want to say, uh, Matt Stafford really had a good game against the Packers defense. I think at Lambeau Field it was. Maybe it was 2018. doesn't really matter which one. But it was um, Mike Pettin tried to bring a lot of blitzes at him, and he just sat that bear, back there and carved things up. He did not have any problem figuring out where the Packers were coming from, and the blitzes just never got home. And that, I think, is is a pretty common situation when you're dealing with veteran quarterbacks. They're just going to pick you apart if they can. And you should avoid trying to trying to do that. You should find pressure in other ways or, or try other ways to slow them down. So if you're looking at actual names for guys you shouldn't blitz on the Packers schedule in 2022, I would think uh, Tom Brady with the Buccaneers, Josh Allen with the Bills, Dak Prescott with the Cowboys, and Matt Stafford with the Rams. Just find other ways to make them pay. I would feel pretty comfortable blitzing Kirk Cousins or whoever the Lions end up playing at quarterback, but there are some other issues at play there that I think are really kind of beside the point. Via Discord, Ray Pese Bay asks, how do you view the concept of pressures as a stat? Just wanted your thoughts on it, as it's kind of a vague term that has specific but does seem to have an opportunity as analytics deepens for more nuance and understanding that all pressure isn't created equally. So I think this is a good question because this has been foremost, I think, in a lot of Packers content creators' minds. Uh, after Mike Smith's big polemic in 2019 about how Zedaria Smith showed his value by you know, really just creating a lot of pressures, not necessarily sacks, but how he was one of the elite pass rushers in the league because he had so many pressures and different ways to get to the quarterback, different ways to affect the quarterback than just sacking the quarterback. So overall, I think pressures are a good way of evaluating pass rushers. But like our question asker here points out, we do need more context because as sacks by themselves by themselves are not enough, saying pressures alone isn't enough either. Because for starters, you have to define your terms because generally people refer to pressures and they mean some combination of sacks, hits, and hurries. That's the general definition. One of those three things qualifies as a pressure. But other people break that down a bit further and say hits, hurries, knockdowns, and sacks. They subdivide hits and knockdowns. If you do that approach, if you say pressures and you mean sacks, hits, and hurries, or or the other one, hits, hurries, knockdowns, and sacks, you should break it down by percentages because converting pressures matters. Sacks, while not a total um, evaluation of a pass rusher's quality, I think are better than hits. Given the choice between the two, you would rather take a sack, whatever the quality of it, over a hit, and you'd rather have a quarterback hit than just a hurry. It it does matter. The difference does matter. So let's just take Rashawn Gary, for instance, and look at his past couple seasons. In 2021, he had 87 total pressures. He had 12 sacks, according to Pro Football Focus, who counts them a little bit differently than the official NFL stats. He also had 17 hits and 58 hurries. In 2020, he had 46 total pressures, 9 were sacks, 6 were hits, and 31 were hurries. And in 2019, his rookie season, he had 16 total pressures, 3 sacks, 3 hits, and 10 hurries. Now, I don't know what the dividing line is on how many pressures you should be converting into sacks, but Gary has generally been doing a little bit better over time. 
with a bit of a step back in 2021, which leads me to believe that 2022 could be a big sack year for him. In 2019, he converted 18.8% of his her, or of his pressures into sacks. 19.6% of his pressures were sacks in 2020, and in 2021, that number dropped to 13.7%. So I think there is a, a reason to think that he should be getting more sacks in 2022. Now, there is another approach here that I think is worth pointing out. Uh, Brandon Thorne of the website slash Substack subscription uh, Trench Warfare has an interesting way of, of looking at this entire problem. He focuses exclusively on sacks, but then he goes through and grades every sack and tracks who is getting the highest quality sacks. So just picture in your mind a couple different kinds of plays. Uh, on one play, you have Rashawn Gary uh, bull rushing the opposing right tackle shoving him back one, two, three yards, a couple big hits, and then shoving him aside, chasing down the quarterback and getting a sack. All right, that counts in the box score as a sack. But, and this was a real play that happened in 2018, say the Packers are, for instance, playing the Seahawks on the road, and uh, Russell Wilson does a play-action bootleg, and as he turns to look upfield, having completed his bootleg, where he had his back to the line of scrimmage, he looks up and what does he see bearing down on him? Well, he sees Kyler Fackrell, who was unblocked on the play and just moseyed into the backfield. And what does Russell Wilson do? Well, he sees that the play is dead. Fackrell is too close to him and just turtles. He falls to the ground. And Kyler Fackrell collects a sack. Those both go into the box score as sacks. Both were valuable to the team, but one is clearly a better play than the other. I think that's a good approach if you don't want to just go with the total pressures thing. If you want to look at the guys who are converting, who are regularly getting to the quarterback and taking them down, getting sacks, grading sacks is not a bad way to go about it. So that is Brandon Thorne of the Substack subscription Trench Warfare. So check that out for more. He updates regularly throughout the season. Final question here comes from Ray DeFelice. He says, or asks, do you think a contributing factor in Rodgers' low interception rate is due to him only attempting tight throws and tight coverage to Devontae Adams, and even him sparingly due to Adams' separation ability? I seem to remember many uncharacteristic overthrows down the middle or the sidelines. He prefers the safer back shoulder throw where it is difficult to defend but does not allow much after catch or drop safely incomplete. In contrast, Brett Favre would force it anywhere with exciting rewards along with devastating results. He didn't too, put too much interest in stats while the game was being played. I think Rodgers puts too much game thought in his quarterback rating and being a little more like Favre, just a little more, may get us to the Super Bowl rather than another safe MVP award. So this is a long-running discussion. I seem to remember some pieces back as far as 2014 or 2015 suggesting Aaron Rodgers needs to take more risks. I don't know if I'm sold on that, but let's discuss here for a second. The case for that argument. Uh, first, Aaron Rodgers, I think, unabashedly can be risk averse. In 2018, he was throwing the ball away all the time, just avoiding taking risks at all with the football for whatever reason. And over the course of his career, it's true. You don't really see many situations where he will just try to jam a ball in there like Brett Favre did. But there's also a case against asking Rodgers to be a little bit more aggressive because I don't think there's really much good evidence that forcing balls really works. Maybe he should take more chances, but forcing it might be a step too far. Because if that did work, I think it would have worked more for Brett Favre than it did. And we also, for that matter, 
have loads and loads of evidence of Aaron Rodgers passing up very safe underneath throws to try to find something bigger downfield. Maybe not forcing something into coverage, but forcing a throw that is going to pay off more than that safe underneath throw. If you're going to hunt big plays, if you're going to try to take risks, I guess, I think I'd rather him do it that way than just try to force balls into into tight coverage. On top of that, there is also the small matter of Aaron Rodgers' performance in the 2021 playoffs. I mean, if you want Aaron Rodgers to take risks, you got to have some level of tolerance for a third and eight play where he throws to Devontae Adams, who is dealing with quite a bit of coverage. I don't have a hard and fast answer here for you, Ray, and I'm sorry for that. But I, the bottom line for me is that I'm not really sure what people want Aaron Rodgers to do. They want him to take more risks, but they want him to continue to avoid interceptions, but they want him to force the ball, but also take easy completions, but also get big plays. What, what do people really want? I'm not sure. I think you kind of just have to take the good with the bad. And the good is that he plays extremely, extremely efficient football. The bad is that sometimes it's going to look worse when you throw an incompletion and still get the same result as when it feels really, really bad when Brett Favre throws an interception and breaks your breaks your own back in the uh, in the playoffs. On top of that, I would also just like to note that a colleague of mine, who who I won't name because it doesn't really matter, uh, did a study this offseason on Aaron Rodgers' um, advanced metric performance, uh, expected points added, EPA per play, in the playoffs. His approach relatively conservative, risk-averse, whatever you want to call it, yields the very best EPA per play result in NFL history by a wide margin. A wide margin. There is Aaron Rodgers and there is everyone else in NFL history for whom we have data on that. Aaron Rodgers' approach works. Aaron Rodgers is also, and people don't like to, to hear stuff like this, he's historically unlucky. There are a bunch of things that have not broken Aaron Rodgers' way in the playoffs. Some of them are his fault. Some of them are not. But things breaking your way play a big, big factor in your overall success. Just look at what we talked about again and again and again in the games that changed the game. There are brilliant schematic innovations at play in that book. We hear a lot of different things about a lot of different defenses, a lot of different offenses that changed the way that we look at football. We also read about five or six of those seven games that were not just somewhat affected by injury, dramatically affected by injury. The 49ers win over the New York Giants, Bill Walsh beating Bill Parcells in the playoffs, hinges in large part on Phil Simms not playing in that game. The Patriots win over the, the St. Louis Rams, hinges in large part on Adam Timmerman having a bad block on one play, a play that probably would have gone for a touchdown. Little things like that matter. And Aaron Rodgers has been on the receiving end of a whole host of, you know, just bad breaks like that. Say, for instance, this this past, this past uh, spring, not spring, winter, this past season, the playoffs, Say a, just for instance, on the block punt, that punt was blocked in an extremely unusual way. Many block punts, you know, tend to skitter backwards on the ground or fall pretty close to where they are initially contacted. What happened on that block, though? The ball goes way up in the air, halfway to the moon, it felt like. 
and it falls to the ground. And instead of skittering out of bounds or bouncing into the end zone and out of the back of the end zone for a touchback or what have you, or a safety or whatever it would have been, um, it bounces right into the hands of a 49ers player who scoops it up and has the easiest touchdown just about anybody could imagine. If that ball bounces differently, it's a, if it's blocked slightly differently and goes out of the end zone or the 49ers have to you know, ev- exert some sort of effort to score, the Packers are probably off to the NFC Championship game. Instead, it falls right to the exact wrong place and the 49ers scoop and score. Aaron Rodgers gets credited with the playoff loss there. It's another thing on his legacy, another black mark for the people who don't like Aaron Rodgers. It's another thing he didn't have any control over. We could invoke the 2014 NFC Championship game. We could talk about a lot of different things that could have gone a lot of different ways. But they didn't. And so we have the narrative that we do. I think by and large, you want Aaron Rodgers to just play the way that he has and to just hope for better results. Sometimes that's all you can do. You got the guy who's voted the most valuable player in the league each of the last two years. I think you want him to just keep doing those things and let the chips fall where they may from there. Because, shoot, sometimes you get lucky, sometimes you don't. And that sounds unfair, but that's generally the way that sports and life tend to go. People want to believe that everything is in your control. You can only control a few things. And playing efficient football is is one way to exert some control over how your how your season is going to go. Rodgers generally does that and it it's generally worked for him. Sometimes things don't break your way though. So I've got for you in this episode I appreciate you listening. I'd appreciate it even more if you would do me a favor and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it too. That's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in the conversation you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.